0: You're listening to Harper Audio Presents, a podcast that brings you conversation and inspiration from your favorite authors, editors, and creators, giving you new perspectives on the world of books, culture, and the arts. We are part of the HarperCollins Presents network of podcasts. Francis Jensen is a professor of neurology and the chair of the neurology department at the Perelman School of Medicine, University of Pennsylvania. She was formerly a professor of neurology at Harvard Medical School, the director of translational neuroscience, and the director of epilepsy research at Boston Children's Hospital, and a senior neurologist at Boston Children's Hospital and the Brigham and Women's Hospital. She is an advocate for the awareness of brain research and has written an astonishing, groundbreaking look at the brains of teenagers. It's the first book to focus exclusively on the brains of adolescents, dispelling widely spread myths and offering advice for parents, teachers, clinicians, and even teens themselves. First thing I want to say is thank you so much for writing a terrific book that does in fact succeed in what you quote as arming me with facts and fortitude about the teenage brain. And I understand that one of your goals with this book is to translate the real data and the real science around the teenage brain. And I'm, I'm so glad that you're doing that. So let's get right to some of the vital um, information that you share. And the, my first question is, why is it that until so recently, the teenage brain was so poorly understood? One of the reasons is that brain
1: science has only been evolving in the last two to three decades. And I guess the first... The two extremes of life got looked at first, early childhood and, of course, the, uh, senility and the aging brain. Of course, the tools to look at the brain in the adolescent years um, have only recently become available. A lot of uh, what uh, animal studies have been showing has actually become validated because of modern imaging techniques.
0: Are you using different tools to look at the brain, the teenage brain, as opposed to the young and the older brain? Or is it just that those tools have advanced recently and you can look at all of them?
1: Yeah, it's just that the tools have advanced recently. So uh, I think that uh, society um, never really uh, looked at the teen years as a specific stage. It was kind of this in-between time that you crossed from childhood into adulthood. And it was murky as to when that actually happened, whether it was just puberty or was it going to college or was it getting to the point where you could vote? Is it 21? Does something magical happen at 1159 at the end of your 20th year um, that suddenly makes you into an adult? It's dealt with very poorly in society. And likewise, I think that was reflected by the priorities of uh, the neuroscience mm. research field. I think because early childhood was so focused on socially, a lot of research has gone into that. And similarly, uh, at the other end of life, being you know the aging brain, uh, with that being such a big concern and the burgeoning uh, population of aging baby boomers, for instance, mm. there's a lot of research that's been focused on the aging brain. So this in-between stage teen brain post-childhood, before early adulthood, was not really focused as a specific medical, educational, uh, social, and even political stage in life. And I think we have to recognize that there's very different brain chemistry in the in the adolescent brain compared to earlier versus later times. How is this uh, manifested? First of all, they have different uh, susceptibilities and sensitivities to different drugs, be they good drugs, meaning therapies, versus illicit drugs, <laughs> substances of abuse. The brain in the teen years has a very different response to earlier and later times. I think the educational community also is aware that the teen years are a time of intense um, productivity, potentially, uh, for learning, but maybe we don't really take advantage of it to the extent we can, this enhanced plasticity of the teen
0: brain. Yeah, yeah, because that was one question of mine, that the enhanced plasticity and the susceptibility to learn and that increased susceptibility to addiction. Those are two sides of the same
1: coin. Right. I think that's one of the big points that we like to make is that there's a lot of good things that the teen brain is inheriting from childhood um, as it is morphing into an adult brain. But because it is not yet adult, the teenage brain, the adolescent brain, is apt to take many more risks and doesn't have the insight and judgment that an adult would have. Hence, teenagers can find themselves in rather precarious situations and also can be um, potentially a novelty seeking and testing drugs of abuse, which can have more severe consequences on the teen brain than the adult brain. For instance, both uh, marijuana and alcohol have more severe effects on a teenager, dose
0: for dose, than
1: in a a middle-aged adult.
0: And that's due to the brain, that's not because of their weight, or their. is hormones part of that? Hormones is part of it,
1: but it's in that hormones can drive brain development, but it is more this state of, just the maturational state of the brain. As the brain is growing through childhood, there's an intense amount of learning that can take place. And, and why can children learn so well and learn two languages effortlessly? They have uh, an ability to build connections between their brain cells to a much greater extent than they ever will again in their lives. And that those connections are called synapses. And the building of synapses is very much dependent upon what the brain is experiencing Mm -hmm. in the environment. And that's why childhood uh, is such an important time for early learning, and uh, a lot of studies have been done on early enrichment in the Mm -hmm. very young child. Well, that doesn't completely just turn off at the age of 12 or 13 or 14 or when a child goes through puberty. Teenagers are still imprinting, if you will, Mm -hmm. on the environment and all the way into sort of early adult life. So they are very vulnerable in good and bad ways to the environment. So good things stick with them more easily than with an adult. Their memory is a lot better. They can learn a lot more minute by minute than we can as adults. But at the same time, their ability to um, put things into perspective is not yet fully developed. And that process is due to the connections between different brain regions. regions, And that is something that takes place from the back of your brain to the front of your brain. Okay. So in childhood, you do not have much access to what we call the frontal lobes, prefrontal and frontal cortex, which are at the very front of your brain. And over adolescence and into early adulthood, that part of the brain begins to connect up through a process of um, myelination, which is insulating the connection. So they, that the connections can be made very quickly like an electrical wire. Um, It moves very quickly the information from the back to the front of the brain. This process, though, doesn't complete till the mid-20s or even later now. And there's also gender differences. Boys are approximately two-ish years behind girls in terms of that connectivity. So we see some of that play out, for instance, in high school where girls can be very organized and uh, relatively more organized, I should say, than some of their male classmates. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. Now, what about the, the moodiness? I, I describe my teen daughter as she's either singing or she's crying. It, it seems to go so quickly. Is, mm-hmm. is, that, is that a function of... of The brain and and in its particular stage in the teenage years, I think
1: it is a lot of it is because they don't have their frontal lobes online. They can't really look at themselves objectively. They don't have that level of insight, Um, and things can be very confusing. This is look. This is a time of huge discovery of self discovery, the teen years, and in a way, I wish that some of the information that's in my book uh, could actually or I hope it does get to the teens themselves, i.e. the end users of this information. Because actually, when we've given this, uh, my talks to high schools, the teenagers are really fascinated they're in a, trying to figure out what's going on yeah. with them. This is all new. And so adding some information to say, look, it's normal for you to be this way at this point. Right. It's normal for you to not be able to wake up until 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning. Your circadian rhythm is different. It's There are explanations for the, the kind of... Um,
0: sort of the baseline. The risky baseline. situations yeah, yeah, yeah. that you
1: get yourself into. There are... Know this about yourself and know that you have one brain, that this is a really wonderful time in development because you have this enhanced plasticity. You can correct learning problems that may have um, or partially correct weaknesses, enhanced strengths. Your IQ can change during your teen years. This was a huge revelation that yeah, research that has huge. recently shown. So it's a time thats that, is that Teenagers should recognize is like a great chance to set themselves right. up for life. You have one brain, take care of it while you're a teenager. It will pay off in spades through the rest of your
0: life. That really is the primary message that that you give throughout the books. And you then you get specific it, in terms of tools as to how to do that. And as someone who did read an earlier copy, I have started to talk to my teenagers differently and say, look, you know, this is the hand that you've been dealt at this time period. It will change again but here's what we can do to optimize it. Here's what you can do. One of the things that I also learned in reading the book is you talk about the pruning of the brain cells and why this is a good and necessary thing as as opposed to something that, that we would fear, which almost makes it sound like. Yes. Yeah, so as
1: the brain develops, you first, the brain, it creates a surplus of connections because it, I think teleologically, you don't know what environment you're going to end up in. But as you grow older, you're at least nature believes that's the environment you're going to be in for the rest of your life. So this pruning process begins to to start around adolescence or shortly after adolescence, and it's to hone the brain to make it more customized for its environment that you will live in and the skill set that you're going to need to carry forth your life. So this happens in all in all species um, that there is a critical period of development followed by a pruning process, which is really to sort of hone down and make the brain sort of lean and mean for the right environment.
0: Yeah, I've heard you describe that, that our brains as parents might be completely different, but it's lean and mean. And I, I, yeah. I again, I appreciate that you've emphasized the positive versus, you know, mm-hmm. the negative. And to that end, I, I think I'd like to ask you about, you know, some of the actual strategy that you give to people who are working with these adolescents. And of course, your first and foremost is count to 10. Yeah, And that is, that is what to give our brains, just, just to give it a minute before we react.
1: I think it's really important. I think if you understand what appears to be bizarre behavior coming out of your child, that you, you feel that another species has entered your household and what how could this person be that same chubby little cherubic child that you took care of up until puberty? (laughs) What is this surly person? You have to realize that they in part can't help it. Um, They can and they can't. One thing that makes it worse is they will react to a negative response from a parent. It is all about becoming independent when you're a teenager. So if you alienate them by being so harsh on them, right. and not showing any understanding, it will be like a vicious cycle. You will f- become more and more distant from your child. This is not a good thing um, because you might miss the signs of depression or other mental illness. You might miss many behavioral problems that the child might be having, academic problems,
0: anything. And you um, might just miss a good time because when they're right. when you're having fun, it's some of the best fun ever. To right be with these young, burgeoning people. Exactly,
1: and I always say, you know, I don't think the helicopter parent is a good strategy. However, we are parents. Parents have a responsibility to stay connected to their children through the teen years. It is important to try to stay connected. One of the things we would do around giving the talks that, I, that preceded writing this book- Your missionary our, work? Our yes. Teen Brain 101, yes, on my missionary work. <laughs> um, was to give the talk to the parents the night before so they didn't fret over what we were going to be telling their little darlings the next day. But then um, give the same talk to the teenagers the next day in school and then say to them, Go back and hopefully, at your family dinner, if there even is such a thing, right. please talk to your parents about what you've heard today. Make this a topic of conversation. I think it's really important that families try to stay to, you know, have some family time together. This is, of course, becoming an endangered mm. um, activity with the digital invasion of our homes and minds.
0: I also, I also see. An increased um, sensitivity to fairness and respect. I, I almost feel like another thing to harness in these kids. My, my my kids and their friends are so socially aware and so conscious of of the world and its fairness, and they're act you know they're acting on that. And I think that that's another thing that's not highlighted. That's a really good thing and that we could learn from and use that as they go forward.
1: Right. I think they deserve a lot of credit that sometimes they don't get. And and I have to say that other public pieces about the teen brain have sometimes taken kind of a negative uh, stance and sort of been rather chiding or mocking of the teen brain. I think we need to respect them as individuals of what they're going through and recognize that, in fact, this teen group is probably the first set of teenagers that we've had this much information about the state of their brain, and it could be made available to them as well. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I do get concerned about the fact that life in the 21st century is very different than it ever has been for teenagers, that they can, because of the ease um, of, through social networking and other you know internet activities, They can put themselves into such risky Mm -hmm. and adult settings um, and get access to things that maybe not be, you know, really truly age-appropriate. Maybe they can't handle the stress of seeing a very shocking um, website, for instance. And also, of course, the whole thing with the the online bullying, things that go viral that should have never been more than schoolyard pranks. Um, This concerns me. It concerns me that they are bombarded by much more potential for stress Mm. affecting them. And we know that stress during adolescent years uh, can have an effect on your later life risk for psychiatric disease. Um, And this is something that teenagers should know. Part of writing this book is to make this knowledge available so that um, hopefully it does get to teenagers. And We can't change their environment. We can't stop the world from speeding up. We can't do any of that. But what we can do is give them information about themselves and say, this is a really, you know, a very critical period of your life. Um, You can take it one way or you can take it another. But you also now need to know how to sort of explicitly protect yourself from some of the negative things. Teenagers love data. Yeah. This is a data driven generation. Yeah. This is why the book contains many figures from real science articles. One of the issues we all face in the neuroscience community and any other biomedical or scientific community is that it seems so impossible for other people to understand what we talk about. And it's not. It's very understandable. And I try to demonstrate that in the book by showing real figures from real journal articles so that people feel like, oh, I can access this. Moreover they can actually tell their teenagers when they're trying to explain why something shouldn't be done. It's not just because mom or dad said so. They can say, hey, look at this book. There actually is a statistic on this, you know. I'll just give it to you for what it's worth, but it's real.
0: I found myself saying, All right, now I know that you're not inclined to plan and that you don't want to be able to tell me in advance what you're doing Friday night, but I really (laughs) would appreciate that you don't start a sentence like that. But I have one more specific question. Have you learned more as to why psychotic breaks seem to happen so much more in this time period? If so, why is that?
1: Well, this is something that I think we all can reflect on—family, or friends, or acquaintances that have that have suffered from um, major psychiatric disorders such as uh, schizophrenia or other affective disorders, and. Uh, College counselors have known this for years, that the college period, late teens into early, you know, 20s, early adult life, is a time when uh, people have their first psychotic breaks, if you will, or become depressed, or might, it's a time when there's a high incidence of suicide attempts and um risk for suicidality. And very interestingly, the brain needs to be adult enough to actually do schizophrenia, for instance. You need your prefrontal cortex and other areas that don't connect up until late teen years in order to have that psychiatric condition. So for instance, somebody with schizophrenia is perfectly normal as a child and mid-teenager, and then they start to veer out of the mainstream because it's timing at the same time that their frontal lobes are being connected in other areas of their brain that are responsible or involved in that psychiatric disease actually come online. So it's a very important time to be watchful as parents and educators and family members and friends as to, you know, how your teenager is Looking, especially if there's a family history of psychiatric disease, we want to be mindful so that we might pick up signs. And I think it's made a little bit harder now with the fact that people are more socially isolated mm-hmm. because of the internet. I think a lot of kids spend a lot more time alone in their rooms rather than out and about on the soccer field or, you know, at parties. There's a lot of alone time. And I, I, Make a plea to parents and close friends of teenagers to stay connected. I think staying connected is such an important thing to see, to make sure that there's no warning signs.
0: Yeah. It can be hard to distinguish the warning signs from just a moody teenager, right? It's just such a fine line. And it can be. But it, but, the, but, but a moody you'll teenager... you it if you're there. Right. So
1: there are, if you, you know, go to any of the websites from the, you know, different psychiatric associations, I mean, there are other pretty clear things like loss of weight, um, disheveled, you know, appearance, uh, clear insomnia. Um, There are quite a few physical signs that you can pick up uh, that will give you a hint that this is not just a bad day that your teenager's having.
0: Tell me what your experience was in terms of sitting down. I'm sure you've written throughout your entire career, but this is your first full-length book, right? Yes. How did that go?
1: Well, it was um, a very interesting experience. I certainly didn't know uh, what it was like to write a whole book, and I had a lot of help from um, Amy Nutt, who was the uh, co-author on this book, and she gave me a lot of wisdom and uh, helped keep me in line. The book, initially, I wanted to make it as accurate as possible because that's all I knew. Right. When I write articles for science journals, you write in a very cold, objective mm. style. And you you try to only speak of facts and, and, and not really offer feelings or emotion or opinion yeah. Yeah, into yeah. that. So I found it actually after I got used to the idea of writing a book, which had to have my voice in it and it had to draw from elements from my life, Um, I actually found it kind of liberating. Uh, But it took a while to get there. Uh, But once we got going, it was great. And it was just a huge pleasure to to begin to sort of pull it together and keep the flow going and continue to relate it back to where I was when I first uh, had to deal with a specific instance that I write about in the book. It also made me uh, cherish those years, which are now behind me. Uh, My teenagers are now young men. They're in their early 20s. And I cherish that, and I would say to parents, remember that this is a period that is a a golden time uh, in a way. As annoying and crazy as it feels, it'll pass all too quickly. and that is good and bad because right. <laughs> this too she'll pass is a, is a good thing to know when you're tearing your hair out. Um, but it's a period of time that I hope that parents um, can look back and go, I'm really glad about that time. I don't feel like I made massive mistakes. We all make mistakes and your children learn with you. That's another important thing. As a parent of a teenager, you have to realize that they're watching you. Yeah. All the time. And it's that they you can't move them about, you can't lift them up and lock lock them in their room. They're big, tall, strong beings. You can only guide by role modeling. And they watch you. They watch how you handle an altercation on the road or in a store. Are you being enraged? Are you acting maybe not as civilized as you'd like to be when you think about it? They're watching you and they actually adopt your behavior. They copy you all the time. And it's important to to know that you may think that they aren't paying attention to you. They're paying attention to you. You're their only point of reference. How you how you organize yourself each day. They may not be even close to organizing themselves, but when they're later in life, they'll go, oh, yeah, my mom used to do that. Oh, my dad used to do that. I'm sure
0: you've had that experience. Yeah, yeah. You actually behave that way later in adulthood. It's made me a better person. I know that she's watching and he's watching, yeah. so I, I stand up a little straighter and I try to be kinder to the Verizon woman, even, right. when, it's, even when it's challenging <laughs> Sometimes you. Some days are better. My mother used to say it's very easy to be a, a good mom until about four o'clock in the afternoon, and it just kind of takes <laughs> it goes down. I think that part is true as well. Well, that's a perfect way to end it. And I appreciate you sitting down with us. Thank you so much, and thank you, ever so much, for this book. Well, thank you for your interest. Thank you for listening. I'm Anna Maria Alessi, and this episode was edited by Sharon Matlin, with production help from Jennifer Monroe. The books featured in this episode are available for purchase wherever books are sold. Please be sure to subscribe to Harper Audio Presents and you can send us a question or comment via our Facebook page. We hope you'll join us next time as we hear more from leading figures across books, culture and the arts, all brought to you by Harper Audio Presents.